All righty, we are ready to uh, to get at her. I hope you're ready as well. Welcome to the show. We are ready to go. Chris Justice is here, courtesy Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. We will get to employee or independent contractor as one of our topics today in between our phone calls. Maybe shoot a couple emails out there. That, by the way, is help at employmentlawyer.ca. And to reach Chris when the show's not happening, one 855 821-5900. So we'll get some calls lined up here. In the meantime, Chris, you got a couple cases or a couple of things, not cases for you personally, but things you wanted to talk about off the start, pal. What do you got first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me on as always. And uh, yeah, to start off today's uh, show, I wanted to talk about one story that was in the news, I'm going to say a little over a week ago. And this involved the announcement from Netflix that it would be laying off roughly 150 workers uh, for the most part, across the U.S., um, I believe they confirmed there was no, or there were no Canadian employees affected by the layoff. But I can't 100% clarify that. But that's sort of what's been going on with them. And the reason for the layoffs is because they lost around, uh, from what I understand, 200,000 subscribers, yep. uh, which was the first reported loss uh, that it had in, I believe, over a decade. And the prediction from Netflix is that those numbers will continue to drop moving forward. So the CFO at Netflix had commented that there was therefore a need to lay off these workers uh, in order to reflect the realities of the revenue growth of their business. And so this kind of got me thinking, of course, uh, as far as layoffs are concerned and, and whether or not some Canadian employees were affected or not. Uh, what I will say is that if there is or are Canadian Netflix employees out there who were affected by the layoff, uh, there's a very good chance they would have the right to seek their full severance pay as a result. Um, even if they are told that the layoff is temporary, uh, even if they're told that at some point it's the company's intention, whether Netflix or somebody else, of co having them come back, uh, they need to understand, these employees need to understand that they do have options. Um, the main reason why a lot of these employees in Canada, or those who've been laid off, would be entitled to severance is because unless they specifically agreed to the layoff, and that could be in, in, in the terms of a contract they signed, uh, that could be in terms of just a document maybe that their employer had them sign, hey, got to lay you off, do you consent? Go ahead and sign this paper. Uh, or it even could be uh, an implied term of their employment. You know, for example, you could be a construction employee who gets laid off every season. And so it could be expected. But if you're in a situation where you haven't consented, it's, uh, layoffs have never happened before, or maybe if they have, it happened way, way, way long ago, uh, there is still that good chance that you would actually be entitled to your severance pay because what your employer is essentially doing is saying, hey, we're going to stop paying you. Uh, completely and we just don't know when we're going to have you come back and that's a huge change to anyone's terms of employment and that would be ordinarily described as a constructive dismissal at law and, and this is the case even if it's related to business reasons so even if netflix is coming to you saying hey look legitimately we're losing business we've got to cut costs right. that still doesn't mean that they can avoid their responsibilities as far as potential severance payments concerned um, yeah. so yeah go ahead I was just going to say it's interesting, too, because I think they might try to lean on the fact, or at least the employees of Netflix, if it happens here in Canada, might say, well, I don't mm -hmm. get severance because this is an American company. Not doesn't matter. You're working under Canadian law, Ontario law, correct? C 
Correct, correct. And oftentimes, at least me personally, when I've dealt with uh, American businesses or American lawyers, you know, the law down there is so drastically different as far as severance and all that kind of stuff. They have, uh, I think it's called at will. will. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Termination. So to them, you know, a lot of them anyways, it's unfathomable that an employee could be entitled to up to two years of severance just for a termination, uh, let alone a layoff. And also further to your point, um, yeah, you may have a company that you work for that primarily operates out of the U.S., but if you're a, a worker who's been working, let's say, in Toronto for the entire time because they've got headquarters there or a business location there, then, yeah, in all likelihood, you're going to be considered uh, or the law that applies to you is going to likely be that of Ontario law in, in the hypothetical that I gave. So you definitely don't want to assume that just because you work overall for a, a largely American business that therefore the jurisdiction of America or any given state within the U.S. would apply. Um, and uh, one other thing I'll just mention on this, this topic is that one problem I've found with layoffs uh, in general is that someone is laid off and they don't necessarily know their options, of course. They don't know that this could amount to a termination at law. They right. kind of wait around, maybe half hoping to come back, maybe not. And then a lot of time goes by, months and years goes by potentially, especially when we look at the COVID context of people who've been laid off since March of 2020. And unfortunately, they're at risk of simply having waited too long to do anything. Um, normally, people have two years to take action against their employer if they felt like they've been wrong done in some way. And so if you're someone who's been laid off over two years ago, and now you're only contacting me or a lawyer after the fact, um, even if you did have a case back then, because you waited more than two years, you're at risk of your case essentially not going forward for that reason. So these are situations that you definitely want to get in touch with a lawyer ASAP you know, as soon as the layoff happens, especially if there's no identified recall date and it's just, you know, we're laying you off indefinitely into the foreseeable future. Uh, you want to get in touch with a lawyer to preserve your rights and make sure that you're not kind of uh, violating any timeline or deadline that, that might apply to you. And as I mentioned uh, off the top, reaching Chris outside of the hour of the show anytime, one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca. What's the uh, second, Matt, you wanted to talk about, pal? Yeah, so the second uh, situation has to do more with a real-life case scenario or maybe what I'll call a case study. And this involves an employer who was ultimately punished by the court for essentially being, well, I'll say discriminatory, because this, this case that I'm talking about involves an employee who worked as a forklift operator and a warehouse uh, individual. And after he became employed, his employer began to notice at some point into the relationship that he had a number of absences from work. And these absences were often happening around weekends and around the, the day that he got paid. Um, aside from these absences from work, the company hadn't really identified any work-related issues. Um, but the company did have a policy that workers had to notify the employer at least an hour before if they couldn't show up to their shift. Um, and in this particular employee's case, the manager of the employee had said that the employee rarely, if ever, gave this advance notice. And so the employee was, was given a warning about uh, the absences, and eventually the employee was terminated 
Uh, however, uh, regarding the termination, no specific reason uh, was given by the employer at that time. And so this case eventually made its way to the courts. And at that point, the employee had testified that he was in fact an alcoholic. And the employee also said that he told his employer about his addiction uh, well before the termination, weeks before the termination, and that he also told his employer that it was his intention to attend Alcoholic Anonymous. Um, and on the day of his actual termination, uh, he told the court that he told his employer that he was going to seek help for his addiction. Uh, now, in the, the court proceeding itself, uh, his manager did actually confirm that he brought up his alcoholism and his, his addiction about six weeks prior to the termination. And his manager also said that he was suspicious that his addiction was causing the absences. And his manager actually relayed that to the, the person in the company that the manager reported to. Um, but the manager did still say that the employee never brought up the addiction at the time of termination. So after considering all this information, the court essentially didn't buy uh, the, the, the idea that the employee failed to mention his addiction on the termination day, but only six weeks before. It, it didn't quite line up for the court in that sense. And the court also found, and I think based somewhat on the manager's statement that they're aware of this addiction, that this had some factor, some bearing in the termination. Um, in, in other words, had it not been for the fact that he was an alcoholic, he wouldn't have been absent and he wouldn't have been terminated. So the court kind of drew a connection between that sure. and his alcoholism. And also because the employer was aware to some degree of the alcoholism, had essentially said, you know, look, guys, you knew or ought to have known that this was an issue. This was playing a big role in it. You also knew or ought to have known that he was looking to get help. But instead, you terminated him. You didn't really provide any reason. And, and that was that. And, and primarily for those reasons, the court found that this individual should be given severance. And actually, this individual was also awarded $25,000 in additional damages uh, for uh, or obviously relating to the human rights concern. So this is sort of another example. I've, I've talked about other cases in the past in terms of uh, cautionary tales for employers. But this is another cautionary tale for employers as far as, you know, obviously disabilities need to be accommodated. Um, there should be records kept as far as, let's say, absences in this particular case, uh, and potentially the reason for those absences. And, and employees, on the other hand, need to understand that, of course, addictions are a disability and that if they believe there's something going on that's affecting their work, they need to bring it up in some capacity, I think, to the employer. Because if the employer simply doesn't know, then of course it's going to be impossible for them to really act on it, address it, and then that may be a way for them to get out of it, so to speak, uh, and sort of claim ignorance. Um, so you definitely want to raise it um, and you know hopefully show some intention that things are going to improve. And if your employer still sort of takes action against you, then it could very well uh, find itself in a, in a case similar to this one. Employee or independent contractor, that's where we're going after the break. Yeah, that means you got lots of time to call in still and ask your questions. Chris Justice is here from San Firu to Mark and LLP answering all of your questions when it pertains to employment law. Always on, always sharp, and ready to uh, ready to roll. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. 
As we get some uh, calls lined up here, Chris, want to get into our uh, first topic for the uh, for the show today: employee or independent contractor. If you're listening, stay tuned and listen with both ears because a lot of these might be these oh aha moments that you didn't realize. So we'll uh, we'll get right into this, pal. First one: employee rights versus independent contractor rights. Break it down. Yeah. So just before I get into that, uh, mm-hmm. just very quickly, what I'll say is that people should not be fixated on a particular label. Uh, if their employer is telling them that there's something, um, and, and especially if it's something other than an employee, uh, don't assume that they are, even if there's some unusual aspects to the relationship. So I just kind of want to start off the bat with that. Um, but having said that, we'll, we'll get into, yeah, the employee rights versus independent contractor rights. So uh, if somebody's considered an employee um, uh, pursuant to legislation within the province that they're in, uh, then they're going to um, have a right to things like vacation pay, you know, statutory holidays, uh, overtime pay, uh, obviously severance pay. Uh, they'll have the right to generally collect EI benefits. So there's a number of rights uh, that are set out in the legislation that at the very least an employee is, is deemed to be entitled to at minimum. Uh, on the other hand, an independent contractor in the, in the off chance someone is uh, deemed to be something like that, uh, these individuals don't have those rights. They would actually have to specifically negotiate those rights with their employer uh, rather than just having them simply be the case as a result of the legislation designed to protect employees. So it's it's possible an independent contractor could get some or all of those things, but it would have to be specifically negotiated. And as I say, unless they are going to be considered an employee or something other than an independent contractor, which we'll get into a bit later, yep. um, they're, they're, they're not going to have those rights. It's going to be very much a different situation. And so as a result of this, I think a lot of companies will often, uh, in my view anyways, misclassify uh, employees as independent contractors. And this, this could be intentional or this could be inadvertent. You know, they may be doing so to try to avoid some of these obligations that they would otherwise owe. Uh, and, and I've seen things where, let's say, for example, you have a contract and it says you are an independent contractor. You are not an employee. But then literally everything else is sort of akin <laughs> to that of an employee. So, you know, they'll, they'll often do so intentionally or, or, as I say, inadvertently. But as I said before, it's not so much about the label that's given to you. Ultimately, mm-hmm. that's going to be a question of the law. You know, the law theoretically uh, would have to decide if someone's an employee or someone isn't. And and for the vast majority of these cases, I don't think someone would be an independent contractor. Um, but yes, a worker who is legally uh, an employee cannot simply agree to be treated as an independent contractor, even if there is that express language in the contract. Yeah, it's it's we always say it's substance over form, right? It doesn't matter what's on the piece of paper, but um, there you go. Right, so, right. PocketEmploymentLawyer.ca, which will give you a breakdown of uh, independent contractor versus employee. Uh, right here and now, how do you know which one you are? Yeah, so there's a few sort of factors that I think the courts will look at in trying to decide whether or not you are an employee. Uh, the first factor or, or one of the one of the factors I mentioned has to do with the level of control. So, you know, how much control does your employer have over you? You know, for example, who is setting the hours of work? Uh, can you set your own schedule? You know, do you have a lot of flexibility with that? Or is it sort of like your typical nine to five job? Mm-hmm. Uh, are you supervised? You know, are you under the direction of others? 
Um, like, have are you subject to performance reviews? Uh, are you essentially told to do things and you have to follow those things, or are you more of a you know um, an independent contractor, someone who can maybe again have more flexibility, do what they want when they want, kind of thing. So level of control. I think is important. Um, usually in a traditional employment relationship, your employer is going to be setting the hours of work. Your employer is going to be determining what work has to be done. Um, and you're going to get supervised and, and sort of, again, given a review um, where, again, contractor is going to set their own hours. There's going to be very little, if any, supervision. Uh, and they're going to kind of go to the beat of their own drum, so to speak. So, kind of like so level of control is definitely a key factor kind of like the plumber scenario right obviously an independent contractor not an employee because he bounces from client to client and you know makes his own hours calls his own shots you know schedules his own uh, his own clients as well right yeah yeah and, and and even if let's say you are a plumber and you have your own clients or maybe you have just one or two clients uh, and you don't actually report to anyone there's still going to be a potential situation where you would be considered an employee uh, or what's called a dependent contractor, right. and we'll get into a little bit of that later. So even yeah. in those cases where you think, you know what, all likelihood I am probably an independent contractor, I still would not assume that to be the case, and I would still mm -hmm. suggest, of course, anyone to reach out to, to a lawyer and, and get some knowledge on that. Um, but that could certainly be a, a scenario where that person would be deemed to be an independent contractor. I um, yeah, go ahead, sir. A question you know, that, that always comes to mind, though, is say it's a bit of um... – you're, you're kind of in the middle, right? So you you've may have started out uh, as an independent contractor, and maybe later on you become uh, an employee. What happens to your severance entitlements at that point? Yeah, so uh, actually just before I get into yeah. that particular question, I just want to touch on a couple other factors as far as uh, whether someone's an employee or not. So we spoke about control. Um, another issue that often comes up has to do with the ownership of tools. Um, or, oh, wow. or items or things that are, I guess, provided or not provided to you. So, for example, the question would be, who owns the tools and equipment? Who's responsible for placing them, uh, for replacing them, sorry. So, right. in again, in a typical relationship, you may be an employee, you're given a desk, a computer, a phone. Um, maybe you're given a, an outfit to wear with the company logo on it. Uh, you're given all these tools, all these items. Uh, and, and usually the company picks up the tab for that or provides them to you at, at no or little cost. Whereas, you know, in your plumber scenario, maybe you've got all your own tools, you bought yourself, you, you own them all. You, you don't really ask the company or whoever you're looking for for anything. And again, you have ownership of all those tools. That's going to be another factor that could potentially sway one things, uh, sorry, things in one direction versus another. Uh, and, and then just the last factor I want to touch on before we get into that question you asked has to do with the opportunity for profit or the risk of loss. So if you're working for a company or you're in an employment situation, can you negotiate your fee? Uh, are you able to hire subcontractors? You know, maybe in that plumber scenario, you can't do the work, so you want to hire a bunch of people under you. Um, you know, th these are other questions that need to be asked because, of course, normally if you're a typical employee-employer type setup, you're not going to be having the ability to hire people, hire subcontractors, do the work. Um, you're you're going to be paid also a set amount. There's not going to be as much risk of loss to you if you're an employee. Um, there, there may not be as many expenses for you as an employee. Whereas if you're an independent contractor, a true independent contractor, you're kind of bearing a lot more risk or all of the risk as far as you know profits and, and losses are concerned 
Um, and then potentially you have the benefit of gaining from that. But that kind of a setup is very much different than your standard employee-employer type relationship. Um, but going on to your question as far as, again, what you're saying is, what if you're an employee or an individual, I should say, who worked, let's say, as an independent contractor, so you know, supposedly, yeah. uh, for maybe five years, and then you, your employer says, hey, we want to switch you to an employee of an indefinite duration and have you sign this contract, and you work another five years in that capacity. Well, first of all, as we've just sort of discussed, those first five years as a so-called independent contractor may very easily not be that, and that may be just an employee. Or, or something else other than an independent contractor. But even if it is in the off chance considered that you were an independent contractor for that period of time, if you later on transition to a quote unquote employee, um, then there is a very, very high chance that those prior years as an independent contractor will still be factored into the equation. Um, historically, that may not have always been the case or that may have been different, but some of the recent case law suggests this is no longer the case and that has to be factored in. So again, as an employee or as an individual, you don't want to assume that you're going to be considered a five-year employee and you should only therefore get severance based on a five-year employee if you've got five more years before that um, already in there, As uh, whether it's as an independent contractor or otherwise. You should be generally looking at the situation more like you're closer to a 10-year employee. So you just don't want to sell yourself short in that kind of a situation. Lots more of these points to get through, but we always uh, get the calls on first. Frank, thanks for uh, standing by for a couple minutes. How are you? I'm doing good, and you? Good, sir. What's uh, what's on your mind? What's your question? I have a temp agency, and I basically work in uh, different hotels and with the GTA, and I have this, um, a lot of uh, South American people, they come here, some of them with the student visa, some of them they come with without a working permit, whatever. And uh, so I hire them, and I hire them as a subcontractors. Now, uh, I understand that uh, probably it's not uh, a legal thing to do, but um, I do have all that. And when I print the check, basically what I put there, it's a, that it's a solo proprietor, meaning that I, you know, he, they work, they do different kind of job in the hotel. Some of them clean, some of them maintain, and some of them do laundry. Now, uh, Am I getting into trouble in the long run or I don't know? Uh, so just so I'm clear and, and thanks for your question, you're sort of wondering, you know, the way in which you pay these individuals, you're, you're, you're asking whether or not it's on side with the law. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I know, for example, there are a lot of situations where, again, a, a company an employer will hire an individual and the company will say that that individual is being hired on as a contractor, let's say an independent contractor, right. or I think you mentioned the phrase sole proprietor, uh, which yes. it seems like you could be meaning the same things. Just basically someone who yes. is not necessarily an official employee of the company. Um, and as a result, in a lot of these cases, uh, the employer will, let's say, for example, pay that person every two weeks or every month. A lot of times it's a monthly uh, basis. And every two weeks. Every two weeks. Okay. So they'll pay them every two weeks. And usually what happens if they're employee, they'll take the taxes off. But in a lot of contractor situations, they won't do that. And they will leave the responsibility to the individual to remit their own taxes. And, uh, and the individual may then file tax returns or tax information that indicates yes. that they're an independent contractor or a sole proprietor. 
And, and, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that situation. Um, and, and that happens a lot. It's just as the employer, even though that may be happening, even though the employee or the individual may be paying their own taxes, or maybe they be sending you invoices, right? Because that's what a lot of uh, sole proprietors or contractors might do, uh, sending yeah. invoices for work performed, even though all of that yeah. is there. And even though that may suggest that you have a relationship with the person that is not an employee-employer type relationship, uh, yeah. don't don't assume that that is correct. Uh, I think if anything, you should get in touch with our firm, and we can kind of take you through that process. Because as I mentioned, it's it's not necessarily against the law, of course, to consider someone an independent contractor and pay them in accordance with the rules that go along with that. Um, but you just right. don't want to assume that, you know, these people that you're hiring are not going to be able to potentially sue you later on for severance pay just because of the way things have been going on. So it's not going to come down to one or two or three different factors. You're going to have to look at the relationship that you have with these people as a whole uh -huh. and, and kind of consider all the ways in which they would be seen as an independent contractor on one side and all the ways in which they might be seen as your typical employee employer. Um, like, like, for example, I'm not going to say this is necessarily the case, but paying someone on a biweekly basis uh, is usually a commonality in employer employer type relationships. Um, whereas maybe if you're paid uh, not so regularly or on a monthly basis, that might be a bit less usual. So that's just one small example of where there's a bit of uncertainty or gray area. So um, I, I think based on the limited information you've given, there's probably not an issue, but that doesn't necessarily protect you from what may be coming down the road. And so I think for that reason, it's best to give us a shout so that we can fully prepare you uh, for everything moving forward. And with that, we'll take a short break. Frank, you uh, so much. If you want to reach out to Chris for a further discussion, there is an avenue for that. one 821 5900 But here and now, Terry, I see you there. Stand by. We'll get to you, and we'll continue with more Employment Law Show. Hang on. All right, we are back into it. Good to have you along, and it would be our good pal Chris Justice is our guy. He is answering all of your questions today as we continue our topic of employee or independent contractor, but always I'll get my uh, pal Jody to get our uh, next call on the line. That would be Carrie standing by. Carrie, how are you? It's Terry, actually. Oh, how are you? How are you? Good. good. Not, too, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, I'm calling on behalf of my daughter. She was um, given a working severance uh, starting May 1st, and uh, it was supposed to be end uh, August 30th. She received an email recently uh, stating that because the company was uh, in economic hardship, that they were uh, backing the severance off uh, to end June 30th with her, her benefits to go forward to August 30th. Can they legally um, uh, retract the severance and change it that way? So thanks, uh, thanks Terry, for your question. Uh, I think it's a good one because it brings into the fold this idea of working notice and then sort of a payment in lieu of working notice. So a lot of times a company may say, you know, hey, Jim, you're going to be losing your job. We're going to be firing you three months from now. And at that time, we'll give you a little bit of a severance package, but this is just heads up that that's going to happen. And then maybe kind of what you were saying, they might say later on, actually, due to some business reasons, um, we're going to have to say your last day is next week. And you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, I thought I had two more months to go. 
Um, generally speaking, the employer can do this, um, provided it's being done for some legitimate reason. Uh, there isn't necessarily anything wrong with an employer sort of cutting short that working notice period. Um, however, if they are going to cut that working notice period short, that doesn't mean that they can't otherwise avoid their general obligations. So let's say, for example, your daughter is entitled to a year of severance and your employer said, we're going to make you work three of those months and then we're going to pay out the other nine. But then they change it and they say, you know what, we're only going to make you work one month. Well, there's still another 11 months to go. So whether they want to, I guess, satisfy that by having your daughter work out that time or simply pay her out, I think something's got to be done. So, so it seems like you know her entitlements are still going to be what they were when she was initially informed of the termination. It's now maybe just a matter of whether um, or, or the degree to which it's it's going to be sort of, I guess, fulfilled by way of a working notice versus a, a payment instead. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. That that explains it perfectly. Okay, I appreciate your comments, and uh, we'll go forward from here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and and uh, just one more point I'll say, Terry, is is to not assume that whatever your your daughter's employer is offering uh, in totality, don't assume that's going to be enough. You definitely want to get in touch with us just so we can make sure she gets as as much as possible and what's fair and reasonable ultimately. Terry, appreciate that call. You want to reach out to more of a conversation? Here's how you do that: one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. But for the remaining time here, Gord, thank you for hanging on for a moment. How are you? Hey, greatest show on the uh, radio, guys. Um, Thanks, man. Uh, Chris, uh, I got a little problem with the uh, the paid uh, sick days for for uh, for uh, workers, right? Um, so basically, it actually goes back to when Kathleen Wynn brought them in, uh, and then Doug Ford cancels them. I mean, basically, those two days paid and three days unpaid were for the regular flu virus to stop it from being spread around the community, right? Right. And uh, uh, so Doug Ford comes in, everybody knows, he cancels them, pandemic starts, uh, we could have used those uh, sick days for the testing and that. Um, so where I'm a federal worker, I kind of uh, got the advantage of that because right away, uh, federally, they made three days paid instead of the two. Little battle between Justin right. and, and Doug. And um, uh, I was just wondering. So the pandemic comes. Um, all the chief medical health officers, all the mayors of the GTA, are coming out. We need ten days. We need paid ten days for the quarantine. Doug Ford still refusing to do it. He had to be pulled by his teeth to do it. You got a question, Gord? Let's get to it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Can can uh, can I hold Doug Ford accountable and the party for spreading the uh, noxious disease? Not uh, enough. I, 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 okay, so this is not necessarily my wheelhouse as far as holding public officials accountable or not. But what I will say is that generally speaking, it's going to be very very difficult, if not impossible, uh, for you to hold Doug Ford accountable, or, or frankly, in my view, for for someone to hold Justin Trudeau accountable. Uh, for whatever uh, has to do with the COVID pandemic, you know, better or right, right um, better for worse, right for wrong. And that's just my position on the matter. So it's kind of hard for me really to get into it much further. But uh, honestly, I, I don't think the odds look that great. 
Appreciate that, Gordon. Moving on here, we got uh, one more talking point before we get on to another topic. Uh, Chris, we were talking about uh, yep. before all the the flood of calls, employee versus yes. independent contractor. Now, you did mention some middle ground there, dependent contractor. Yes. Break that down a bit. Yeah, and, and actually, the caller before Terry, uh, yep. this could apply to his situation because he was talking about taking on a bunch of uh, what he t- what he der- uh, termed sole proprietors. Um, so. Just like with anything, there's usually not just, it's not just black and white. There's a little bit of a gray area. So yeah, what happens if you're not maybe technically an independent contractor, which is in my view, pretty rare, but you're also not like a full-fledged employee. Is there some sort of middle ground? And that's where this intermediate category of dependent contractor comes in. And, And these people are essentially workers who, although they may be genuinely self-employed, uh, they receive all or most of their income from a single client. So you could have, let's say, a sole proprietor, you know, Jim Smith Incorporated, one, two, three, four, Inc., uh, their own business, they invoice out of that business, they're, you know, whether they're a plumber or whatever. Um, and, and all these features are very typical of, a, of an independent contractor, but they nonetheless get all of their money, all of their income comes from maybe one or maybe two clients. And so a lot of times this is what would be called a dependent contractor. Um, And these contractors are not maybe technically employees, but they would still be entitled to notice upon termination or severance. Um, And much like an employee, the amount of severance they're entitled to will depend on a case-by-case basis and also depending on what a contract might say. Um, But there's not necessarily any minimum amount they would be owed. And dependent contractors could get upwards of two years of severance, again, just like an employee. Um, as far as kind of, again, some other factors that go into what what is considered a dependent contractor, you've got things like exclusivity I mentioned. Uh, so again, you're working for maybe one or two different clients, but that's it. Um, you're a dependent upon that income. So the, the, the factor of economic dependence um, these are usually the main two factors that courts look at. You know, is there exclusivity and are they dependent on this income? And if it's just maybe one or two clients they work for, even if they have, you know, John Smith Incorporated, Inc., whatever, uh, they would still likely be considered dependent contractors. And then if, if they lose that work with one of maybe their, their main clients, um, they, they, that client actually could technically be on the hook to pay them severance just like an employee would. Employment Law Show will continue that after a short break. Hang on. As always, the callers are top priority on the show. We'll get to Peter. Hi, Peter. Thanks for hanging on. Hi, Peter. Question for, for Chris. Um, I've been with the company eight years, February past. Um, laid off in 2020, in March, and haven't been called back since. <clears throat> My employer did get in touch with me and find out what hours I would like to work. Now, I'm a part-timer and have been for the eight years. But the time that uh, uh, eight years ago, I would probably work four days a week. When I was laid off, I was down to two days a week, but that was my doing. I asked for reduced hours because of my age, and they complied with that. Now, I understand I have to... July to make up my mind what I'm going to do. Um, If they offer me a job back at the hours I'd like, but a different job altogether, do I have to accept that? Or if I put in a resignation, will I get my severance pay? 
Okay, so first thing, uh, you mentioned that you've been laid off since March of 2020 and that you haven't worked in any capacity for this company since that time. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. And uh, just a point of clarification, before you were laid off in 2020, how long had you been working that two-day-a-week schedule? Oh, uh, several I years. Would, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, and and uh, just just so I'm clear, did you say that after you were laid off, there were some discussions with your employer about coming back? Uh, yes, that was recently. Okay, but they're but they're <clears throat> suggesting you come back in a completely different role. Yes. Okay. So yeah, first I thing. Think, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, because I think the job that I was doing uh, is no longer available as such. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier that you believe you have until June or July of this year to make a decision. But what I will say is that's not necessarily the case. Oh. Um, it, you actually should give our firm a call ASAP. Um, because normally, uh, what I would say to someone in your case is when yeah. they laid you off, uh, assuming yeah. this is the case, they did so without your consent, you know, because like most people, it might have been due to the pandemic. It was. but Right, right. But you could actually treat that as a termination um, because oh. you didn't consent to being laid off. You were happy working two days a week um, and your employer said, sorry, we can't do this. And now it's been over two years and you haven't been called back. So that would be, I think, considered a significant change to the terms of your employment and you could potentially go after the employer for severance dating back to, it might have been, I guess, March of 2020 or thereabouts. But right. the issue is that ordinarily you only have two years to um, start a lawsuit. Um, wasn't, now, wasn't, that ex wasn't that extended uh, by the government until July of this year? The, the infectious disease emergency leave, uh, which was legislation put into effect as a result of the pandemic, right. uh, was extended. But I think what you're doing is you're confusing that piece of legislation with the general timeline that someone has to bring a lawsuit against their employer for, we'll say, a wrongful dismissal. Right. Now, I'm not going to say you're dead to rights. There's, as far as I understand, a little bit of leeway given the pandemic for people to proceed and bring claims against their employer. So I'm not going to say you're without recourse here. I still think there's, uh, you still have options, but I would say get in touch with our law firm immediately so we can kind of handle that. Um, however, on the second question, you know, do you have an obligation to go back to a job that wasn't yours? And no, generally speaking, you don't. Um, right. you, you have an option. You can either agree to go back, uh, in which case, um, you would go back, I guess, in this different role, or yes. you can generally tell the employer, you know, look, I, I signed up to do X and now you want me to do Y. Yes. Um, that's not something I'm, you know, uh, agreeable to because that's just not what I signed up for. Right. And, you know, I would like my old job back. And if your employer says, well, sorry, too bad, so sad, but it's just not going to happen, then you may actually have a cause of action right there. So, you could actually have two different situations where you could pursue something against your employer for what they did back in 2020, potentially, right. or you could sort of um, take uh, action against them maybe for more recent events in terms of, you know, the, these discussions that you're having with them. But I would suggest you give our firm a call uh, just so that you can be best prepared for any further communications you have with your employer. 
And mm -hmm. uh, I would say before you even have any further communications with your employer, you should give us a call and then we can make sure that, you know, you don't say anything out of line or anything that might, you know, limit your options um, because there potentially could be a significant case there, even if you're only just working the two days a week. I see. Yeah. If if I decided, look, I'm not going to, uh, I put in a resignation letter. What what happens then? Do I still get a severance pay? No, I, I do not suggest you put in a resignation oh. letter. Um, if if you if 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 there is a clear and unequivocal resignation and there's no doubt about it and it's yep. your voluntary decision to resign or to retire, right. then it's going to be very difficult for you to get any severance. Oh, um, I see. Especially if you put it in writing because yep. sometimes there's uh, not a lot of context behind what's put in writing and that could put you at risk. So before you do anything like that, again, you want to give us a call and we can take it from there. And we'll take it from there as well. We are done. Chris Justice is done as well. Want to reach out now, as mentioned, one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca. Anytime to reach Chris and always pocketemploymentlawyer.ca too. We'll catch you next time. The Employment Law Show.